welcome to Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes. This is videocast number 42 and podcast episode 32 for the week ending August 7th, 2020. And as we do each week, I'd like to start off uh, with the media spots. First, I'd like to thank Liz Clayman and Ellie Terrett for having me on the show uh, this week. And... Uh, Incredible story, literally 30 minutes before the show started. Uh, I was up in Connecticut working remotely. We lost power, cable, the whole shebang. A generator was uh, certainly of no assistance, so we did a cell phone call in. We're gonna talk about some of the important subjects uh, we covered. And the most important thing that Liz asked, which was a great question, if you had to rotate out of tech, into what sector or sectors would you rotate into? And it was very prescient. We saw it today, a big move into cyclicals and a lot of money coming out of tech. So the timing, as always, with the Clayman countdown was spot on for her viewers. Thank you to Liz Clayman and Ellie Terrett for having me on the show. And now we're going to move to the BBC World I was on on Wednesday and the key question that was asked there uh, that was Sharon Jeet Leal and thank you to Katie Silver the producer who invited me on and Sharon Jeet was asking why is the market up so much and we're gonna go into that in quite a bit of detail so that was fun to be on BBC World News with Sharon Jeet thank you for that and now let's get right to our article of the week. We called it the Garth Brooks Friends in Low Places Stock Market. Uh, that's actually last week's. Now we're going to go to Tim McGraw's. A uh, lot of country themes here. Uh, this week was Tim McGraw. I like it. I love it. Stock market and sentiment results. And I always get nervous putting a, a title like that, you know, as the market's moved up because uh, uh, very easy to top tick when you when you put uh, a note like that out. But um, I, you know, as we described it, is that's basically the theme over the last week. The market's been going up, and um, I thought that I like it, I love it, uh, I want some more of it. I try so hard, I can't rise above it. Uh, and we're going to talk about that now. So basically, we have uh, finally filled the gap from late February that we had talked about in recent weeks on the S&P 500. And now the question is whether or not the S&P has enough gas in the tank to rise above it, as Tim McGraw would say, and make new highs. And we're gonna find out in coming weeks, you know, a lot, definitely the stimulus package is very important. They seem to be going back and forth, but we've said in literally for the last two weeks that we didn't expect a stimulus bill to get passed. That was not our base case. What we expected was executive orders. I, you know, I don't know that they're gonna get, it's a wide chasm that they're trying to bridge between 3.5 trillion, 3.4 trillion, and 1 trillion, number one. There are a number of nuanced issues with regard to vote by mail and money for states uh, that I, I just don't know if they're going to get there. And the most important thing is that they extend the unemployment benefits, which maybe we'll get an announcement uh, for over the weekend or tonight. I'm recording this at about 4.55 p.m. on Friday. Um, 
Uh, that's number one. The eviction and uh, foreclosure moratorium, that can get done by executive order. And third, maybe the stimulus checks. There have been a lot of uh, talk about a second round of the $1,200 checks for, for lower income households. That's a huge, huge benefit. And whether or not the administration can do all of those by ec executive order under emergency powers uh, remains to be seen. But <clears throat> I do think we're going to find out. And uh, we've been talking about it for a couple weeks. Charlie Gasparino and um, uh, his partner Lydia over at Fox Business have been publishing early scoops on, on that type of action. And my sense is this. I mean, if I was in this administration's shoes and I was having difficulty coming to a deal and I had re-election coming up in November, I would effectively preempt it. And I would just say that um, my opposing party does not want to come to the table to come, come up with something urgent to carve out the people who need it most. So we're doing this executive order and then just fight it in court later uh, and take credit for the stimulus. That, that, that's what any logical, whether it was a Democrat or a Republican, would do in such an urgent situation where people are week to week um, uh, with the enhanced unemployment. And, and to quabble over whether it's $600 a week or $200 a week, I said two weeks ago on uh, CGTN America with Mike Walter that uh, they'd, they'd meet in the middle. It looks like that's the direction that they're going, but the question is all the fat around the stimulus. I don't know if they're going to get to a deal, and uh, it seems like the uh, Democrats don't want to do a carve-out because then all the other stuff would be off the table. And fundamentally, at this stage, with the way the economy is recovering and all of the unused stimulus from the first bill that's authorized and able to be used but hasn't been drawn upon uh, as of yet, um, you know, what is needed, which is uh, the enhanced unemployment and potentially the stimulus checks and the eviction and foreclosure moratorium, uh, if that can all be done from the executive branch, which we've talked about in recent weeks, then there's no reason to do, to do a deal before the election, and the administration could effectively take 100% of credit for getting people uh, what they needed in a time of need, and um, and and then you know fight with it later if it was if it, if it was a, a constitutional a potential constitutional or legal issue, I'm sure they vetted this. Uh, I think the payroll tax cut is something that could be done from the executive branch. I don't know optically if that would make sense. It 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 uh, certainly would help put people back to work, but we have somewhere now in the last three four months recovered just over 40% of the jobs that were lost from COVID have now been recovered in just the first three, three and a half, four months uh, following the crisis. That is staggering. We saw some numbers today, which we'll get into. So uh, there's a lot of things that point to getting the gas to get over all-time highs for the S&P 500 as we had with the NASDAQ and then potentially for the Dow. Small caps showed some strength today. So there's a lot of good things happening and, and that's the next step. So, you know, looks up here, 3393, 3400. The other thing is earnings support it, which we'll also get into. Analysts have actually been taking estimates up. Um, so 
estimates for 2021 are now higher than they came in for 2019. So we already got to about 3,400 on the S&P with slightly less earnings than we're going to have on a go-forward basis. So it would support making all-time highs just on fundamentals uh, that are coming in. So that's a good thing. Um, last week and in many recent weeks, we've emphasized the relative performance between leaders and laggards. And in the Garth Brooks article last week, which we, we brought up a minute ago, uh, we said we wanted to make some friends in low places by focusing on those cyclical value laggard sectors that we believe are going to outperform in the early stages of the recovery. And you can review that note here at the website, uh, the Garth Brooks Friends in Low Places stock market. Either you can find it, uh, the easiest way to find it is you can always just click on under categories here on the right at hedgefundtips.com, click on sentiment. Uh, and or use this search bar here on the right and type in um, Garth Brooks and it'll come up. So um, Liz asked the million dollar question and this was the call in on Tuesday and she said, with a huge run in tech, if you had to rotate into another sector, what would it be? And I said I'd follow Warren Buffett into banks. In the past couple of weeks, he's purchased now over $2 billion of Bank of America stock. He's also applied, he now is authorized to buy up to 25% of the bank without becoming a bank holding company. And this has taken his total position to 25 billion dollars. Uh, Wells Fargo is also one of his top holdings. So it's time like th times like this, which we linked to a couple articles last week when everyone's asking, was asking when he sold airlines at the bottom in, in March, is Warren Buffett lo losing his touch he, um, because he's now buying uh, cheap laggard value stocks instead of buying the high flyers. These are the periods that have always preceded his largest periods of outperformance historically. If you look back over the last 50 years, when he's lagging, like in the late 2000s, he was buying value stocks when they were out of favor, and then the tech market crashed and the value stocks outperformed over the next eight years. Yeah, outperformed, we covered it, I think, a couple weeks ago by about 250%. If you added in uh, the uh, tech loss relative to tech, it was somewhere over 300 some odd percent and just completely crushed it. And the same thing is gonna happen right now. No one wants banks, no one wants financials. Warren Buffett is buying them hand over fist. And by the way, uh, we talked about it in recent weeks, but uh, that he had bought back about $5 billion of Berkshire, which is obviously financial, uh, in the financial, one of the top weights of the financial sector in the S&P 500. Now they're estimating, there was an article on Bloomberg that it's closer to $6 billion of stock that he bought. And that's why you've also seen Berkshire stock flying. So that's just another factor. He has not lost his touch and he will prove the naysayers wrong once again, he's done two $10 billion deals in the energy industry in the last uh, 12 months. Everyone thinks those are silly. Over the next five years, you're going to see they're the most brilliant bets he's ever made in his career. Uh, well, they're going to they're gonna make him a lot of money. I mean, he's made a lot of brilliant bets, so I can't quite parse it that way. But uh, And now uh, loading up on banks and loading up on his own stock, which is a phenomenal opportunity. Um, okay, so... Um, so never, ever bet against Warren Buffett. Uh, and 
the time to bet with him is when everyone's questioning him because he's always doing what's unpopular and buying inefficiently priced stocks, which is what's made him uh, able to outperform over many, many decades. So the other thing I elaborated on with, uh, with Liz on the claim and countdown on Fox Business was that since Wells Fargo's now cleaned house uh, management, all of management that was involved in the aggressive sales practices has gone as of a couple weeks ago when the CFO uh, um, uh, stepped down. So now they can go back to the bank regulators and say that, you know, we've changed our policies, we've changed our management, please remove the asset cap, the $1.95 trillion asset cap, uh, which has limited its growth. And knowing that this is a pro-growth, pro-recovery, you know, yes, they've done the miracle of getting 42% of the jobs back in just a few months, but they want the other 58% of the jobs back. There's no other way to do it than to increase credit growth and credit expansion. And Wells Fargo is the largest, you know, one of the largest mortgage lenders and small business lenders in the country. They're a transmission mechanism to extend credit and grow credit, which is critical. You cannot have a recovery without credit growth. And Wells Fargo is, the, is one of the biggest players and it has this governor on its ability to help the US recover, to help put uh, you know, we've got 9 million of the 22 million jobs back, but to get those other 13 million people back back to work, you need Wells Fargo out there extending credit along with the other banks. But the, the consumer, Wells Fargo is the most consumer facing bank. You know, you, you've got certainly JP Morgan. Bank of America is probably the second best, uh, best or if not the best. That's why Warren is heavily weighted. You notice Warren Buffett has... Wells Fargo and Bank of America. He doesn't have a lot of Goldman Sachs. He doesn't buy the invest. He, he doesn't have the investment banking and trading unpredictable revenues. He has the steady mortgage business, small business lending, you know, consumer lending in this case. And I think that if you're a bank regulator and Wells Fargo says we've made all the changes, we need you to lift the cap. You need us to put. You know, 30, all these people uh, back to work. Yes, you've done it almost half of it now on your own, but we can help accelerate that and really, you know, get Main Street back to work. I think it's a win win. I think that could be one of the major catalysts to moving forward. It's still trading at 30, well, after today it was up 3.5%, but it's still trading at about a 35% discount to book relative to a 75% premium to book. It traded at just a few years ago. Uh, last time they cut the dividend in, on March 6, 2009, the stock double, uh, went up 250% over the next few months. Uh, book value is around $40 right now. It wouldn't be unrealistic to see this thing trade back up to book um, you know, over the next handful of months, if not more. And if you get a lucky break, uh, which would be great for the country for the recovery, where the regulators say we have no... We have no reasons to keep this cap over them because they've made all the changes and we need them as a transmission mechanism for the recovery. Uh, this thing could just rock it overnight. So uh, that coupled with getting closer and closer to the uh, vaccine and or treatment, which Goldman Sachs put out a note in the last 24 hours uh, that was reprinted on Market Watch through Steve Goldstein. 
And basically what they're saying is what we've been talking about in recent weeks that, uh, well, theirs is more pronounced, tech stock leadership could be in jeopardy from successful vaccine news. And um, so they're talking about the rotation and uh, into cyclicals once it's clear that it's going to, the recovery is going to be here because cyclicals always outperform in the early stages of recoveries coming out of recessions because they they do well in high growth environments and when the bar is very low it can jump over it and tech does well in slower growth environments later stages so um that's number one number two uh they put you know a shocking thirty seven hundred dollar target on the s p 500 so it wasn't just saying like okay, go into cyclicals, tech is going to weaken. It was like this market could blast to 3,700 because, yeah, people know there are a lot of shots on goal, but this could happen a lot quicker than people are anticipating. Like they're talking early October, and then, you know, you'd, you'd have a, a vaccine, you know, getting out there in early November. I don't think anyone's really aggressively looking at that. And he's saying it could just shock people and take the market to 3,700. Maybe, maybe not, but I, I thought that was certainly very interesting uh, and in line with what we've been talking about in, in uh, the last, uh, you know, handful of, of webcast video casts. Uh, the other thing, so that's, uh, that's about our favorite stock, Wells Fargo. We added uh, pretty materially this week to it for uh, clients and for ourselves, um, and, uh, and we like it. So let's see what happens. Uh, next, the other thing that I think is more important than um, than that is looking at the earnings expectations for 2021 that really support the theme of a rotation uh, or an outperformance of industrials relative to tech. I'm not of this binary zero-sum game like tech will crash and cyclicals will rally. I, I don't I don't see it that binary. I, I see it as tech should generally do fine. They're effectively monopolies, the top five. We know that maybe there will be regulatory challenges for them because of that, but it'll be tough to prove and it'll drag out. But, you know, the one thing I can say is I've rarely seen a company go before the Senate on antitrust issues and things got better for them in, in the intermediate term. Usually, even if they get through the first hearing or whatever, it's the beginning of, you know, a heavy lift for many years to come and uh, if you want to ask people how that works just ask Microsoft and you know how it took them many many years to recover from the, the government uh, heavy hand and um, and in effect they missed mobile because they were so you know overweight dealing with antitrust and dealing with the government that uh, that they missed that and now Satya's uh, in the driver's seat and and they're they're back and they they missed mobile, but they got um, SaaS effectively uh, with uh, Office 365 and completely transformed the company. So kudos to them. Um, so there are a number of things, but the most important thing that I see in the short term, because we're looking here at the intermediate term, we want to know what's going to happen in the next three to nine to 12 months. And estimates for 2021, the S&P is expected to grow earnings 29.2%. Uh, that is relative to tech uh, expected to have earnings growth of only 14.3%. So 
analysts are saying we squeezed a lot of juice out of the lemon. They got obviously a boost from everyone being forced to work remotely in Q2 uh, of this year. And we saw that in blowout earnings for, for them, for Fang uh, in, in recent weeks. And however, you've got Infotech at 14.3% growth, S&P at 29.2, but financials are expected to grow earnings at 31.6% and industrials at 85.5. Again, these are off low bars, but when you have those type of growth rates, it's an excuse for re-rating multiple expansion, you know, rotation, capital flows, all the positive things that cause a sector rally and that's you know that's been my kind of career knitting is catching sector rotation and then trying to identify those stocks within the sector skating to where the puck's going that i think are going to have uh the best relative to performance so the sector relative performance and then the stock relative performance uh and that's just you know that's that's what i do that's what i like to do and and hopefully you're finding some of this valuable that uh, that you can benefit from it so next, um, the other thing Liz asked was, you know, what other sectors, and I didn't get a chance to talk about all of it because the signal wasn't, wasn't the greatest. Cell towers were down, landlines were down, power was down. It was, it was awesome. But uh, anyway, we also like defense stocks quite a bit, um, some energy, uh, and home builders. Now, home builders and all of these we've been buying um, – those of you who've been following us know, you know, since the, the crash in March and April, home builders have already had a monster move. That is going to continue for years to come. But, you know, obviously when they're trading at new highs, uh, they've had a lot of the short term move. So, you know, you look for some weakness on that in coming months to add for the longer term. And that's a function of 85 million millennials, now urban flight. Um, and the housing formation for 85 million millennials was starting well before COVID. It's dramatically accelerated it. You're having bidding wars in Connecticut, which has been a, uh, in a housing depression since 2008. Um, one of the few states that just, you know, houses were still trading at a discount to 2007 levels uh, 13 years later. That's now changing, and you're seeing bidding wars, which is mind-boggling. And bidding wars even an hour out of the city because now people, uh, bosses believe you know can see that people can work remotely and they maybe only have to go into the office once a week or two or three times versus five times and that enables people to get more house and land for less money and they're doing it so um uh so so defense stocks in particular and you know it was interesting i wasn't going to spend a lot of time on it because it's usually a short segment but with the rhetoric escalating with China, it's going to, if for nothing else, it's going to draw attention to the low valuations. It's in the industrials basket, which, you, which we just covered is going to have among the highest uh, earnings growth for 2021, along with um, consumer discretionary and energy. And um, uh, so you're going to have a situation where money's going to be rotating uh, rhetoric is going to pick up. And the one thing that I've always said a couple weeks ago, I was on with Mike Walter on CGTN America. And I said, so long as the phase one deal stays intact, I don't anticipate this escalating to anything beyond, you know, escalate, you know, rhetoric. Um, what we found in recent days is that 
the Chinese are well behind on their energy purchases for 2021, and they're going to be having a meeting with the administration in coming weeks to discuss that. But with them so far behind on their purchases, I think more and more attention is going to draw into these defense and aerospace sector. And um, the other thing was there was a note that actually came out today which supported this thesis, but it wasn't related to um, it wasn't related to the kind of Cold War trade war escalation with China. It was more related to actually government demand for the space-based programs. Um, you know, for those of you who've been watching Space Force on Netflix with Steve Carell, you know <laughs> that there will be tremendous demand. And by the way, we have a new branch of the uh, uh, defense uh, sector. So what Michael Eisen says in his RBC research note via 24-7 Wall Street, uh, which was posted today, he says, quote, defense exposure continues to provide a more stable fundamental backdrop. Investor concerns regarding the outlook for defense budgets has weighed on the sector's valuation, which we think has been overstated. The group has appreciated on average by 4% over the last three months versus 16% for the S&P 500. Earnings results from the defense contractors have all held in much better than feared, delivering headline beats for all companies with a majority of sales to the market to the end market. Book-to-bill ratios have also held above one time across the board, with the strongest backlog growth coming from space-based programs. That was not part of my original thesis, and that is a, as a nice added uh, benefit. So I'm going to have to parse those numbers over the weekend in coming weeks and, and see just how material that is. Uh, and he said, in contrast, the outlook for commercial demand has turned more bleak as the spread of COVID-19 continues to trend in the wrong direction. Okay, so... Uh, I would I would disagree with that last statement, and we'll we'll show the data that supports it. But he's calling this uh, mega cap defense stocks may be the best idea for the rest of 2020. So there's an ETF uh, for that. You can get a basket. I think it's uh, ITA is a basket, or he's recommending Boeing, General Dynamics, and I think he had Raytheon, L3 Harris, and. Raytheon. So the big names, that would be the highest weights in an ETF anyway. Um, so that was that. And also, Liz referenced a Morgan Stanley note by Mike Wilson, uh, who I read a lot, that was not only calling for a rotation into cyclicals, but also a 10% correction in the market, overall market, before resuming the V-shaped recovery. This is certainly plausible, but whether the market corrects a full 10% as they predict or not is going to be dependent upon how aggressively value and cyclicals pick up the leadership role as we get better COVID you know, vaccine treatment data in coming weeks and months. And we're getting good news every single day, and I think we're going to finally get a hit sooner than we all expected. I think it's going to be a big surprise like a light switch. Money's going to move into cyclicals. Now, the skeptics will say, well, the weight of, you know, the cyclicals is so small relative to tech and healthcare that you would get a major correction in the market if you had an abrupt rotation. Um, and to that I say, you know, you could either see a flattening market, you could certainly see a five or 10% pullback, but under the surface, you would have other different stocks and 
sectors rallying while the market is taking a breather. And we're seeing this show up actually in um, the correlation of stocks has widened, meaning um, you're getting paid more today for being able to pick stocks than you have at any point in recent history where it was like risk on risk off everything trades together now there's such a wide dispersion of of stock performance that if you can anticipate these moves and skate to where the puck's going and then get the best stocks within those sectors you can dramatically outperform uh and it's just the environment that the market has served up uh oftentimes that is the type of environment you see at periods of an inflection, uh, not only of economic recovery after recession, but oftentimes it, it precedes a change in rate environment. So a lot of the best stock pickers, billionaire stock pickers, mostly value guys uh, who made their fortunes in the 70s and, you know, late 60s, full 70s, early 80s, when the market was even flat, but rates were rising, that's when value tends to outperform and that's where uh, stock pickers really get paid. So the billionaires like Lee Cooperman, you know, Mario Gabelli and that whole crew, obviously Warren Buffett dramatically outperformed in the 70s. Uh, they made all their money in that type of environment, a rising rate environment or an inflecting rate environment. That's when, um, like I said, the correlation goes down and stock pickers can really dramatically outperform. It's very hard for stock pickers to outperform when the correlation is so tight and you're just playing the risk on risk off game. And that, that is changing. So that may foreshadow a change in the rate regime. Not that rates are gonna spike up overnight, but they could potentially, we could be at an inflection where they start to, to move in a different direction. And certainly uh, steepening is in the cards if, if uh, yield, curve, yield curve control comes to pass because uh, this Fed uh, is focused on the short end of the curve up to the five year, which would steepen it dramatically and pour buckets of profits into banks. Uh, and that would, transmit to Main Street because it represents lending and profitability in lending, uh, which in incentivizes uh, the extension of credit, which incentivizes the transmission mechanism, which hopefully the regulators uh, get the point and take the asset cap off of Wells Fargo. <laughs> okay, uh, moving on to the next section. Um, I also got a call, uh, email from uh, Moxie Ying at Bloomberg this week. She's working on an article. I don't know if it posted yet or not, but she she was talking about the um, weakness in the dollar and the implications of that, and how it made me think about investing moving forward. Uh, the good news is the dollar has weakened and that'll help S&P earnings, that'll help emerging markets, that'll help currencies. The bad news is usually when I get an email like that, it's at the end of a short-term move. <laughs> so probably expect a little bounce in the dollar in coming weeks. But um, I think the trend is right. And what's interesting is about two or three months ago in one of these podcasts, um, I noted a stat in... Uh, from one of the Bank of America Global Fund Manager survey that managers, I think this was probably the February report, were the most 
bearish on the dollar that they had been since like 2002 or 2003 and the dollar subsequently plummeted like 40 50 percent emerging markets just took off uh, value stocks took off commodities took off and i think that we're in a similar situation so uh i put her questions in bold here in the article she said how big important are currency plays when you're investing in equities how does a weakening dollar affect your investment um so certainly it's it's favorable for emerging markets and commodities it attracts uh foreign investment and it makes it easier for emerging market companies to service their u.s denominated debt and they took out a lot of it in this cycle so that's going to really really help them um also, it's estimated that about mid 40%, depending on the year, 42.5 to 47.5% of revenues for the S&P 500 come from overseas. And a weakening dollar is going to help those S&P earnings as the foreign currency received converts back to more U.S. dollar and improves EPS. Uh, also makes multinationals and U.S. exporters much more competitive in foreign markets. It's a tailwind to U.S. earnings. It can be a headwind to the U.S. consumer, particularly um, they lose a bit of their purchasing power because commodity prices go up like oil and gas um, and um, the prices that they have to pay for imports, etc. So um, the sectors that benefit tech to a lesser extent they're more insulated from this, but they do have as much as 60% of revenues from overseas, so that can be helpful. Industrials do very well in that environment. Staples do not do well because their input costs go up. Materials and energy do do well because what they're selling uh, becomes more valuable. And <clears throat> financials benefit because it's usually uh, when you see a weaker dollar you start to see a steepening of the yield curve so that helps net interest margin for banks incentivizes lending healthcare utilities and real estate and telecom do not generally benefit because they have a lot of US sales and uh, her last question was are currencies becoming increasingly important determinant of what stocks you buy and why what you're thinking and uh, philosophy behind this uh, generally Yes and no. It's not a factor, but the sectors that I'm leaning into um, will benefit from this. I'm not leaning into those sectors because I'm predicting the dollar. I'm leaning into the sectors, and those sectors happen to be benefited by a weak dollar. So it's a, it's a second derivative. It's not a primary line of thinking. Uh, but what I did include in the article is a chart of emerging markets relative to the dollar. And it, as you can see, when the dollar bottoms, the um, emerging markets peak and vice versa. When the dollar peaks, the emerging markets bottom. So you saw a peak in the dollar in 2009. The emerging, emerging markets had crashed. You saw a peak in the dollar in this 2015 to 2000. 16 period the emerging markets crashed and then as it started to weaken you had a huge rally in the emerging markets both in 2003 to 2008 in 2009 to 2011 and in um, 2016 to 2018 and now 
you had your dollar peak in the early 2020 when emerging markets crashed, and now that the dollar is weakening, emerging markets are ripping off the bottom. So uh, the same is true with commodities. It's basically the same because the correlation between emerging markets performance and commodity performance is so high, but it's effectively the same. Weak, weak dollar, strong commodity prices, strong dollar, weak commodity prices, et cetera. And that's the, the reason for why those sectors do well. Now, um, <clears throat> on the BBC News, World News with Sharon G. Leal, they were curious, like, why is the stock market doing well? And they were focused on, like, oh, cases are going up and COVID is so bad and everything else. And yes, it is. You don't want to diminish that. But um, cases are coming down slowly and stubbornly. But in this, the spike areas, the Sun Belt, they are coming down. Arizona, California, Texas, Georgia, Florida, you're seeing them mostly come down and in some cases materially come down. And then it's being offset by other areas. So we're not seeing second waves. We're seeing like migration of big first waves. If you look at the curve in the Sun Belt, it looks like the epicenter New York, New Jersey, Connecticut did in March and April, which are virtually down to zero. Schools are reopening. They just announced today in New York. Um, it's been handled well. You're going to see the same thing start to happen in the Sun Belt. They're going to fall off the off the. Um, they're going to collapse the number of cases, uh, and and part of it is because of the, now people see it's real and they're using masks and they're social distancing. Whereas in the beginning they don't. But I also think it actually hits a, a critical mass point where the you know. I think there's so many people that build antibodies when you hit such a high concentration that eventually the, the virus just has less hosts that it can um, uh, get to. I mean, let's leave aside the health stuff. I'm a, I'm a markets guy. It doesn't matter why they're coming down, but they are. And then we'll have a first wave probably in the Midwest and cases will spike up and they'll say, oh, it's a third wave. No, it's a first wave in the Midwest and we'll deal with that. The good news is it's less population. The bad news is we'll have to deal with it. But by the time that happens, we'll probably either be out of vaccine or be out of uh, better treatments. The treatments just get better and better. Uh, remdesivir cut a deal, I think, with Pfizer. They're going to produce tons of the uh, um, remdesivir a lot more than they thought they could, 2 million doses in the next few months. Uh, that was announced today. So the five key reasons that matter as to why the market's rallying, which was their question that they couldn't understand. Number one is earnings and estimates are blowing the doors off, okay? So um, now it's been... Okay, this was Wednesday, 84% of the S&P had reported, I'm sorry, 63 had reported and 84% had beat earnings estimates, which is the highest since FactSet even began collecting the data over 12 years ago. Record high beat rate. I think that's down to, it's now an 83% beat rate, but close to 90% of the S&P 500 has reported. So it's still the highest beat rate uh, since they've been collecting data over 12 years ago. The source is fact set from John Butter's report. This is huge. So expectations were very low. The bar was very low. It blew the door off. That's number one. Number two, for the first time since um, Q1 of 2018, and I covered this on the video, uh, analysts are actually taking estimates up on a quarterly basis for Q3 and Q4, but more than that, uh, for 2021, they've taken estimates up 
to over $165. They were down to $163 a few weeks ago uh, or last week. Now it's up to $165. And as I said, we haven't seen that since the beginning of 2018. That's really, really positive news, and it's catching a lot of people off guard. No one is was looking at uh, with cases where they are, which is largely a function of testing going up. Um, you know, it went up... 400% relative, you know, from April 17th to July 17th, testing went up 400% relative to cases going up only 100%. But with that said, to see the jobs numbers like we saw today, which we're going to talk about a little later, and to see the earnings numbers and the estimates, I mean, what's going to happen when there's actually a cure What with all the stimulus aid and liquidity and momentum we have going in, it's going to just be a very high growth. And by the way, I saw someone on... I don't remember the name a couple days ago talking about um, – well, many people have been on talking about money supply growth of 25%. Mike Lee was out talking about that. Uh, But there was another – there was an economist on that said that usually you can translate about one quarter of M2 growth – into real nominal into nominal gdp growth so if we've had about 25 percent money supply growth since march about a fourth of that call it six and a half percent would be an increase in nominal growth in the next year so imagine if we saw six and a half percent gdp growth for 2021 levels we've not seen uh in decades uh that could just be Staggering. So it was interesting to see it put in that context because, you know, I think people were looking for three, four or five percent GDP growth next year. I think the uh, consent, Fed consensus was five percent. But what if we see six and a half, seven percent? No one is counting on that. And I think the market is really starting to sniff that out, which may give us gas in the short term to uh, get the S&P to new highs alongside the NASDAQ, which would be pretty exciting. Um, so number one was earnings and estimates exceeding expectations. Number two, economic data continues to beat expectations, and we saw that this morning. Blew the doors off with the with the jobs report. Um, and this is the economic surprise index is still holding above 230. You haven't seen that ever, okay? This is uh, compliments of Yardeni, Ed Yardeni over at Yardeni.com. Put this out. <coughs> so as of uh, two days ago, it was at 218.9. You know, the, the, the high peaks for the last 10 years through this through what was a bull market were 80 to 100. Now we're double that. The percentage, the amount of data points beating expectations. So that, that's pretty exciting. The third reason the market's rallying is the stimulus aid and liquidity, over $10 trillion authorized. We haven't even used a, a, a port. You know, we, we've only used a very small portion of that. We're probably going to get more in this carve-out slash deal slash executive order, whatever comes of it over the next few days. Um, uh, but we haven't even used what we have. So this is going to continue to drive growth. Uh, and as the health situation is solved, uh, th- this is going to be enormous for growth. And I, I think what's exciting about that is the structurally unemployed that really never benefited from the last recovery are going to finally start to benefit. They were starting to about six to nine months before the COVID thing hit. These discouraged workers that are not even counted, uh, U6 unemployment, 
they started to come back into the workforce and we were seeing the labor force participation rate come back, which was really exciting because it affected a lot of people in their uh, late 40s and mid 50s that still have room on their career, but were just, you know, kind of forced out, couldn't get back in. And now they're, they're going to get forced back in as the demand for labor is going to go up dramatically with, with this level of stimulus. Uh, fiscal stimulus, which we've been waiting for for years. Uh, the fourth reason is obviously the most important thing. We have good news coming out every day on the vaccine and treatment progress. And fifth, as I said, uh, new cases are slowly coming down uh, on the COVID on the health front. Now, onto the shorter-term view for the market. This week is amazing. Okay, um, you know, new highs on the Nasdaq. Uh, Market's moving up, and it's still the most hated, feared rally in history. You had the AAII sentiment survey results at 23% bullish. This is historically a uh, pound-the-table buy level. When people are that scared and that uh, fearful and skeptical, you want to be a buyer of stocks, not a seller. On the flip side, their bearishness was still up at 47%. Generally... When it gets into the mid-20s, you want to buy. And when it gets into the mid-40s, uh, uh, for bearishness, you want, to, you want to be a buyer and vice versa. When bullishness gets over 40%, you want to take a look at what's going on. We're getting a little frothier. You want to lighten up uh, on some of your winners. We're nowhere near that, which is just staggering how much skepticism and, and how and, – and it goes back to the fidelity numbers, which said I think it was like – 60 it was some huge number 60% of people sold at the bottom or no no it was no it was 30% of people over age 60 sold all their equity holding at the bottom in March so now they have to hate it because they they sold at the bottom and the higher it goes they're going to get forced in against their will so it's just um it's frustrating to see, but uh, you gotta, you can't bet against America. It never ever pays. Um, but nonetheless, um, there's still, look, everyone makes mistakes. There are still huge opportunities in certain sectors that have not rallied as much as the general market, which we've belabored in recent weeks. That you can still take tremendous advantage. I mean, you look at a company like like follow Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett's buying Bank of America, hand over fist. We like financials. We, you know, uh, financials and defense stocks are still really, really cheap. Wells Fargo is is still down over 50% off of its February highs. That's exciting. How many times in the last four decades have you had an opportunity to buy Wells Fargo at a 50% discount, one of the largest lenders in the, in the greatest nation in the world, um, and uh, trading at a 35% discount to book value. You have to believe, to, to, to think that this price is efficient, you have to believe that Wells Fargo is gonna do half as many loans in the next 12 months as they did in 2019. With the asset cap on, by the way, they had the asset cap on in 2019, so the asset cap is not the only problem. Um, and, uh, and I think that's a sucker's bet. Because you see it in housing demand, okay? Mortgages are going crazy. So um, there is 
abundant opportunity still out there where you can do even better than you would have if you just held the general indices through the downturn. And uh, look, this is our opinion. You have to know your own risk tolerance, talk to your advisors, et cetera, et cetera. But um, you know, these are just things we see based on a lot of experience and, and seeing a lot of cycles and studying a lot of history. So uh, take it for what it's worth. Now, next, um, uh, the fear and greed index on the flip side is showing a little bit, it's getting a little bit more greedy. So uh, when I did this article, it was at 70, I think it probably closed today around 72, 73. In the area of 80 to 100 is when we want to start to get a little cautious, maybe trim some winners, maybe rotate into from some leaders to some laggards, uh, be more cautious. So we're keeping an eye closer on this. So these are conflicting signals, which I've not seen often in my career, but it's it, we are seeing it now. And then finally, the institutional, the active managers from the NAAIM were all in at 97.44%. That doesn't mean anything in isolation because as you saw here in 2018 uh they got to 103 percent and the market rallied another four or five months uh and if you look at the 2013 to 2016 period it kept hitting 90 and 100 and stayed pinned over and over and over so these are generally better contra indicators when they, they collapse uh, and and to, to be a buyer versus shorting when they're extended. Same thing with fear and greed. But you do pay attention when they get to these levels and, and look to see where the froth is. So um, we said that in our message for the week that we, you know, we acknowledge the uh, um, divergence. However, um, we weren't uniformly at euphoric levels, only the NI. National Association of Active Investment Managers was at euphoric levels. So we're very constructive in the intermediate term. We'll take advantage of any additional buying opportunities in laggard cyclical names, uh, which we did uh, in spades with uh, Wells Fargo in particular this week. And um, we, we, uh, and we'll use any pullbacks or corrections to add more in, in coming months in the summer and fall. But for now, it's time to like it and love it until the euphoria shows up uniformly across all metrics and it becomes time to trim some winners. So that's the article of the week. Next, we want to move on to Zero Hedge, actually put out an article late this afternoon about consumer credit. What I loved about this, if you look, when consumer credit moves from such a fall um, you know, this is, you can see here in red, it just fell off a cliff in uh, 2008 and 2009. Once it inverts off that bottom is, is usually highly correlated with when the stock market starts to rally. And that's why I keep emphasizing the transmission mechanism of Wells Fargo as being one of the largest extenders of credit uh, to Main Street is that when the credit gets out there, you get the recovery. And you saw that this inflection from 2009 to 2010 and the market just took off and never looked back. We had the lowest read obviously in March and that has just turned materially positive. So the last time that happened where you had that inflection um, was, was back in the last crisis and you got that first big spike green and it just took off after that. And we just got the first big spike green. So this could be very, very promising for what's happening with the consumer. And, um, you know, in the non-revolving uh, monthly credit change is even bigger than the overall U.S. consumer credit monthly change. So I thought I would highlight that because that was really a, a positive thing. Um, okay, now we have to talk about the election as we're getting closer. Uh, I'm 
I'm going to talk about this only on a markets level because that's what I care about. Political level, I really don't, that, that doesn't make me money, political ideology. What makes me money is being right about the market. And I think that's why you're listening to this podcast and video cast. So everything I say, it's, it's, it's about doing well in the markets. It's not about what I think about who should win or why they should win. So I always look at election betting odds um, because I think where people put their money is a better indication of where, where their talk is about polls and opinions that are useless. Um, so right now, um, the money is still betting against the current administration, which um, you never want to count out ever. Um, but what I'm, what I'm most interested in is a sweep, which I don't think will happen, but the election betting odds are indicating at this stage where it will. Now, I don't have the data from 2016 to see how far behind Trump was from Clinton in election betting odds. I would love to have that data. If anyone can get it for me, uh, I'd be very, very grateful. And, um, you know, please send me an email and we'll figure out... um, how to use that. But I, but I do remember he was down materially. I, I'm not sure what the spread was at this point. I do know, you know, when he had that Billy Bush, Bush video three weeks before the election, he plummeted and then he rebounded in three weeks, never mind three months. So this is not that important right now, but we have to start to factor it in. So right now, the betting odds are saying that the administration would lose, uh, the Republicans would lose the Senate, the Republicans would lose the House. That would be a real problem because then you could have a tax change that would, and we've covered in recent weeks, um, regardless of what party you're in, the best thing that can ever happen for the stock market is gridlock, okay? So if Trump won the election, you would want to see the Democrats maintain the House and whoever you know, gets the Senate, Republicans or Democrats, it wouldn't matter. As long as you have the checks and balances. If Biden won the presidency, you'd want to make sure the Republicans held the Senate. Those situations are bullish for the markets. If you get a blue wave or a red wave, that's a, that's a big problem. But let's talk about a blue wave because that's what the election betting odds are looking at right now. And we covered a few weeks ago, someone asked on the Ask Me Anything uh, question was what would be the impact and we, t- we referenced an article that did the math based on if you raise the, the corporate tax rate to the levels that are in Biden's plan that he's publicly stated it would impact S&P earnings by about 20% which would uh, immediately devalue everyone's nest egg and retirement by about 20% following the two or three months after he was elected because the market would start to discount the um, reduction in earnings as companies had to use more of their profits to pay tax. So after-tax earnings would be impacted and the market is just a, a, a function of a multiple applied to the earnings power. And when you have more ta- money going to tax and less going into investment, not only do you have less earnings, but you have a slower growth rate because the money that could go into R&D and building out new factories is also curtailed. So you not only lose 20% of earnings, but you'd have a slower growth rate, which would likely have a, a lower multiple, which means you could lose more than 20% in the stock market and in people's retirement accounts. So most people are logical, and even if they dislike 
uh, an ideology. They, they tend to be rational and vote their pocketbook in retirement. Why? Because they work their entire life to build it up and they don't want to see it collapse 20 to 30% overnight. Now you, you'll say, well, what are you talking about? You know, we had one of the greatest economies ever in the 90s under the Clinton administration. And you're absolutely 100% right except for the fact that you had the checks and balances you had the gridlock okay you had you didn't have a clean sweep of democrats you had uh you know republicans to check some of the extreme ideologies of republican policy and extreme ideologies of democratic policy so uh by the way for everyone listening to the podcast uh, we may run out of time. Just go to hedgefundtips.com. It'll be on the YouTube video cast. Fast forward to the 60 minute mark and you'll catch the last few minutes on video and not miss a thing. Uh, but I'm going to try to, to get right down to it. But this is, this is an important subject. Now, everyone, no one is covering one of the key things that's happening. One is you can't predict out this far because it wasn't useful in 2016. What we can predict is if it's a full sweep, it doesn't matter really who gets the presidency from a stock market point of view, so long as the Republicans hold the Senate. Um, but if you got a blue sweep, you are going to get a big, uh, you know, people's retirement counts are going to go down dramatically. And, and for a lot of people that are older, that, that they can never recover from that because it's not like they can restart. So uh, hopefully logic will prevail, um, at least, you know, keeping the Republicans in the Senate uh, and more likely, you know, other things could happen. Now, there's one thing that everyone has been ignoring that I keep tweeting. No one likes it. No one retweets it. No one even knows what I'm talking about. But Kanye West has been slowly and surely getting on ballot by ballot, Wisconsin, um, Arkansas, New Jersey's in contention, uh, Oklahoma, uh, and submitted Missouri, Illinois, uh, and he's going for Ohio, West Virginia. And if you notice, most of these are swing states. These are not like red states. These are swing states. And the thing about Kanye West is, um, like in some sense Donald Trump, everyone underestimates him. And obviously the media overplays. You know, he has these episodes. You know, look, the guy became a billionaire selling sneakers. So... Uh, I wouldn't underestimate him. And um, how it will play out is as he gets on more and more of these. By the way, this is just getting on the ballot. The other states, people can still write them in. But it's easier to check the box. And I think that there's a large enough constituency uh, in the country that really likes him and admires what he's accomplished in business and what he's done with his church and, and different things that they will go out, particularly the younger demographic, they will go out and they will vote for him in these swing states. And um, that could um, uh, unintentionally sway a ton of electoral votes away from Biden and to Trump. Um, if any objective analysis of this says that it will pull votes from the, the Democrat side and um, probably deliver it to Trump. Now, if you're a Democrat, 
in some sense that's bad news, but in other sense, you might think that's good news because what it could do is it could bring a, a ton of people out to vote in these states that would not go out to vote for Biden because whether they're just not excited or they can't relate to him, they will go out to vote Kanye West and then they'll wind up voting Democrat because they're, they're pulling the votes from Biden, but they'll vote Democrat Senate and Democrat Congress. So you could have literally a surprise as, as Kanye gets on more and more of these ballots where Trump wins the presidency because he gains all the electoral votes in the swing states. But if the Republicans aren't careful, they will lose the Senate because Kanye will bring in a lot more Democratic votes or a lot more younger a lot younger people out to vote who wouldn't vote. Uh, obviously, the Dems are going to get the House. That's kind of known. The Senate, it's a lot closer. The Republicans are, in theory, expected to retain it, but that could swing. Now, if Trump won the presidency and the Republicans lost the Senate and the House, that would be bullish because you have the checks and balances. I know Republicans are going to you know, email me and go crazy like, what are you saying that would be bullish? It would be gridlock is bullish for the stock market. I don't care about political ideology. I care about making money on, as for this podcast. Okay, maybe one day I'll do a political one. I don't count. Don't hold your breath. Okay, uh, so that would be bullish for the stock market. Uh, if 